0: Well, good morning. When you uh, see a passage like that in Second Peter, um, what do you think? Does that encourage you? Anybody excited for heaven? A couple of you? Yeah. All right, let's try that again, maybe by show of hands. Anybody excited for heaven? All right, thank you, thank you. I was 30 years as a high school math teacher, and... When I didn't get a class that reacted, I thought it's either Monday morning or it's a grade nine group. Or it? <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you again, um, and uh, this topic of heaven is what's on my mind today, and it's been one that I've been thinking about a lot lately um, and shared about as well, but uh, one of the reasons for that is that uh, back in April, uh, my, fo- my own father died, um, and part of it and a year before that, almost, almost fully a year before that, my father-in-law also died. And uh, in the, between my father-in-law dying and this weekend, uh, I've had been involved in four funerals. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, being the most recent one, and there was another fellow in our assembly who, who died as well a few uh, months ago. All of those things make you think about life. They make you think about death. And one of the things that's pretty important to realize is that um, the people left behind are the ones who end up with all the questions about what's going on. Um, so I'm going to say one thing here that uh, if, if nothing else sticks with you, please be clear whether you're a follower of Christ or not for the sake of the people left behind. My own father, I don't know if he's saved. So I don't know if I'm going to see him again in heaven. And that's a tragic thought. I don't like dwelling on it. It's miserable. It's miserable to think about the fact that he might not be, or the possibility he might not be in heaven. Um, He was a church-going man. Um, He knew of the gospel, but I don't think he ever really had a relationship with Christ that ever came out in any way. Now, I'm not his judge. Uh, I love my father dearly. Um, But uh, meanwhile, the other people that I referred to, we all knew where they stood. The one two weeks ago died uh, in his 89th year Uh, Having served the Lord faithfully, he founded a camp up in the Muskoka areas and thousands have been influenced for Christ because of his humble and godly life. Um, uh, What kind of legacy are you leaving? What kind of legacy am I leaving? In the passage that our brother read for us, which I'm actually not going to dwell on, I use that to sort of set the tone, but uh, notice it challenges us that when you know that these things are going to be, what sort of people should we be, it says, in holiness and godliness? There is an expectation that our lives in this present age are affected by what we believe about the future. Um, these are not just things to think about as factual, though they are factual. They're not just, it's not just knowledge to accumulate and you can give the right answer to people. But it's supposed to transform us when, we, when we're into the word of God. And when we think about the glories of heaven, it should affect us. And so what I wanna do, if you could turn to Revelation 21, I'd like to set a bit of a tone there in addition to what we read in 2 Peter, and I will refer to the 2 Peter passage um, in pieces at various times. But in Revelation 21, um, we can see the heart of the Lord about that time that Peter wrote about. And you remember verse 15 of that passage, it said Paul also wrote about these things. Uh, Well, John wrote about them too. And, and, uh, but that would be later than when Peter wrote. And uh, there are all kinds of uh, revelations that we have about what God is going to do. Um, but one of the things that tends to happen with heaven, going I ask you a question, what is your first thought when you think of heaven? What do you fixate on when you think of heaven? I'm going to leave that question as a bit of a challenge with you. What do you honestly first think about when you think about heaven? Now, that's a personal answer. You can think about that for yourself. What is on God's heart and God's mind when he describes heaven? That's an even more important thing. So let's take a look. Um, In Revelation 21, I'm going to read the first seven verses just to set it up. And then we'll be doing pieces of this and jumping to other parts of the Bible. So here it is. Revelation 21, in the version I have, it starts off in verse 1 saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Uh, and if I'll pause there, that's what we read about in Second Peter, right? Where he's just going to do a complete meltdown of the current system. Um, and by the way, notice it's both earth and heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Why do we need a new heaven? There's sin there too. The very first sin that was ever committed in the creation of God was in heaven with Lucifer and his group, Right? we think of the first sin as being Adam and Eve. That's the first earthly sin. That was not the first sin in, a, in creation. And that demonic influence came to earth um, to affect us, to rob God of glory. But the current heaven is not the heaven that we will experience in this future day. Matter of fact, if somebody goes to be with the Lord, which we're going to talk about today, they haven't yet experienced they're not yet experiencing the heaven that's described here. We, we get these ideas. that This heaven that we're going to read about here does not yet exist at least as far as has been revealed to us or anybody for that matter. Even the people who are currently with the Lord are not yet experiencing this. At least that's my understanding of Scripture. This is going to be a future time when finally all the periods of time are over and time is gone which I can't even imagine. I don't understand that. Um, but but when that that whole system that God created here that is temporary and never meant to be permanent, when He melts it all down, completely renews it, this is what we're reading about. That will be revealed and it's not yet something we have anybody has experienced. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and some versions say, and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Let me pause there. Anybody okay with this idea? Anybody have any troubles in life? (laughs) Would this be good to have this gone? Right? We have all that suffering. This is a broken world. It hurts us. We hurt each other. We hurt ourselves. God hurts because of all this. He never wanted it to be this way. So think of the heart of God. He is making a place where all of this brokenness, all of the consequence of sin, whether your sin or somebody else's against it that causes whole effect, everything, even the environmentalists have some issues right about some of this stuff, right? They may worship the creation, but they've got some points that are correct, is that it was never meant to be treated this way, and the, the fall of creation is because of the fall of humans, and it's, Romans 8 teaches us that. All of this has just been completely denying what God wanted it to be in the first place. But the day is coming when that's all over, when God will have it his way, and it will be glorious, it will be beautiful. And so the suffering may last for a moment, for the, till the, morning, right, for the moment, but joy comes in the morning. Right? He's got a plan. And he who sits on the throne, verse 5, said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Uh, It is just amazing to think of the heart of God. And when I read a passage like this, I notice the emphasis he he wants his people with him. He wants to dwell among us and be be our God, and he wants us to be his people. Um, And uh, that's not a new revelation. The Lord Jesus, while he was getting ready for the cross, twice, two separate occasions, a few days apart, he lamented over Israel, uh, Jerusalem, and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a hen would gather the chicks under their wing, but you were not willing. He said it one time before being in Jerusalem and one time after, um, and uh, and those that shows the heart of the Lord, that he wanted to gather his people. It was not the Lord's will to come and destroy. He was coming to pay the price. That's what the cross is about, to make it possible to redeem people, that they could be with him forever. That he, so this is what's going to happen. In heaven, he's, he's saying, I want to be with my people, and I've created a place where I can be with my people. These are created beings, he's saying. I'm not a created being, God says, but I have created you, and I'm, I'm creating a place for you. But it's not just for you, it's for us, he says. I get to be there. You get to be there. That's what God is saying. Um, God is saying, I I want to gather people to myself. I'm making all things new, and the the order that I created is going to be established. And look at the invitation that we get to have the spring of the water of life, that sustenance. Um, And uh, not only that, but we get inheritance. And um, there's so much more we could say, but... Let me jump down to, um, actually, no, I'll just briefly mention, I was going to say this later, but I'll say it now. The next several verses I'm going to largely skip over here that describe the New Jerusalem in detail as a physical place, this capital city, Um, but just an idea how big it is when you look in verse 15. Um, In this version it says 1,500 miles, Um, if I did it right, using my atlas and stuff, um, if Mm. Actually, where you are here, it was considered the center of that, just the footprint of this place. 1,500 miles, length and width, and height. I take it to be a cube. I was a math teacher, and that's what it sounds like to me. But some people have said a pyramid, but I think that's probably pushing it. But uh, they get the point. I don't. (laughs) All right. But... uh, Let's work with the, the, just the footprint though is square. It makes that very clear. Um, and uh, so if, assuming it's a cube here, but uh, it's a, this footprint is square. If you here in the, in the GTA, if you are, I'm from Cambridge, I don't really qualify. Um, but uh, if you're here at the center, and that's the center of that square, then the east wall would be around Halifax. The west wall would be around Winnipeg. The north wall would be somewhere around where James Bay enters into Hudson Bay. And, uh, and then the South Wall would be somewhere around where Georgia and Florida meet. What do you think? Pretty big. <laughs> you think Toronto and Mississauga and all that's really impressive. Think about that. Like, like, how tiny is that compared to what this massive city is, right? That's the footprint of it. Matter of fact, um, with the, if it is a cube, um, that capital city is so big that if there were 20 billion people present, now, I, I don't anticipate that because Christ said, That narrow is the gate, and few there are that find it, right? But maybe uh, all the babies and all those, I don't know, you know, but uh, um, I trust God, whatever. But let's just say 20 billion people were there. We would each have 0.7 cubic kilometers, like I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house of many mansions. You haven't seen a mansion in this area that's anything like the size of 0.3 cubic kilometers of space, right? <laughs> we each have a huge amount of space. Why why do I say that? I don't want to dwell on this because I want to get into other things with it. But what a generous God. <laughs> what a spacious place this is. It could take in everybody without a problem. Every single human of all time. It's not going to be that way, sadly. This chapter actually teaches us that not everybody will be there. But God is not willing that any should perish but for all to come to repentance. We read that in 2 Peter 3. He wants people with him. It's that people don't want to be with him. But he has crea- he's creating a place, even though he knows not everybody will be there, he's creating a place that would have been sufficient with plenty of access. And, by the way, the description of all the of things used uh, in this city, those phenomenal images that are there about the uh, stones of the foundation, the 12 foundation stones, and, and this... Now, by the way, a little pet peeve. Nowhere does it say streets of gold. It's in the singular. There's a street of gold. Um, and I say that not to be critical... But to point out, there's actually probably a purpose, because you know what, we don't need a street when we're in those new bodies. Remember, Jesus could walk through walls (laughs) and stuff when he had his new body, right? We don't have to have something to walk on. It's not going to be a limitation to us. But there is a street, and it describes the street, um, and uh, it says that it uh, leads to the throne. You can look at chapter 22, actually. It says, verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1, then he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was, was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit and so on. Um, and uh, there is a reference earlier on about the street as well, verse 21. There's a single street made of pure gold, uh, transparent glass. By the way, pure gold is actually very weak. <laughs> it can be met you know, if you step on it, you would break it. <laughs> you would bend it. Um, but uh, that's, that may not be a factor in the new, new order. But the point is this, is that that is construction material. It's pavement. The foundation stones are all these jewels and gems that people have literally killed for. The pearls. People have also given their lives to get pearls. Every single one of the 12 gates is one single pearl, that's a, a huge gate, like a huge door for each one. What a value there is in that kind of probe, But it's a door. It's a gate. It's construction material. These are beautiful. It's going to be radiantly beautiful. But the point is that all this stuff on earth that we pay literally our lives for to invest in, as far as all these materials go, it's construction material in the, in the New Jerusalem. In other words, the purpose of the place is not the materials. The purpose of the place is what's going on there and who is that person that's at the center of it all. That street leads from a throne. And to a throne, maybe from the East Gate, we, we're not told. The East Gate is always a prominent place in all the other structures God ordained in Scripture. Um, so maybe there's one street that goes from the East Gate up to the throne. I don't know. We can speculate, and that's a danger in this topic. But, it's, uh, but the point is that the center of it all is the throne. So let me jump into that. Uh, if we look at verse 22 of chapter 21, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the street had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Uh, we already read in chapter 22, verse 1, about the, uh, the throne of God and the Lamb uh, being there, um, and uh, the street and the trees. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 22 says... There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. And then one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, verse 4, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. He repeats that. That's a significant point here. And they will no longer have need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these things are faithful and true, and the Lord... of The the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. We can keep reading in this chapter, but you can see the the invitation we have um, in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. But I want to point out that, uh, as I said, that not everyone's going to be there. I don't want to dwell on that. This topic of heaven is itself large enough. But it's also, uh, there's enough to be said about that. But if you look at the very next verse after the one I just left off at, so verse 15 says in chapter 22, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, we've talked about the gates and so on. And when when he says outside, he doesn't mean just outside the gates. He means outside the system outside all of this, beyond all of this, away from all of this is more the idea here. It's not like you leave the city and suddenly you see all these people out there. No, that's not it, because we actually, the whole area is blessed, right? The whole place is blessed. It's, there's no sin anymore. There's no weeping and all that. That's not just the city. That's the whole system that he's talking about there, the new heaven and the new earth. Um, but you'll notice that there exists a lot of people who don't show up there, won't be there. Chapter 21, we could read the same thing. In verse 8, it tells us, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And the chapter 21 ends with something that says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a serious thing. Um, That this place, although God wants all to be saved, not all will be saved. And it's important for us to make clear where we stand. First, so we're not deceiving ourselves. And secondly, like I said, for those who remain behind, such as in our family, that you can actually either rejoice or mourn. But don't sit on the fence. You're actually being really cruel to your family if you're not clear. Um, and uh, that is something, and I say that, uh, again, not to sound judgmental of my own father, but it hurts to not know. But God is not fooled. He knows whether you're his or not. But why would anybody live in a state of, of gray when Christ says, I want you either hot or cold? Lukewarm nauseates me, he says. That's a paraphrase of uh, Revelation 23, uh, Revelation 3. Um, but uh, as far as, if you found Revelation 23, get a different Bible. All right? <laughs> so, just in case you're worried about me. Um, but uh, I say this, I want to dwell on the heaven side of it. I want to talk more about what happens to us, our bodies. So we're going to actually go to 1 Corinthians. Um, but while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, um, I just want to point out a couple of things. Please, please be very careful not to manipulate people, especially children, when you talk about this. Christ didn't go around offering people heaven all the time. He offered a relationship with his Father. He called them to follow him. What do we preach? What's in our tracts that we give out? I shared something like this once in one place, and somebody came up to me afterwards with a tract from their, from their assembly's display case. He said, "Is this the kind of tract you're nervous about?" And I borrowed it, took it home, and I came back that evening, and I said to that same person, "If you can convince them to get rid of this tract, please do. I'm not going to go and take them off your wall. There was almost nothing of Jesus in it. It was all about destinies. That was never Christ's emphasis. I think you're going to be in John fourteen next week is that am I preempting something yeah (laughs) you were you were sharing with me earlier and I got excited because I love that passage but when we see the Lord Jesus saying I've prepared I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am you're going to marvel at that place that's what he says right now that where I am there you may be also right and when the rapture happens first Thessalonians chapter four it talks about and so we will forever be with the Lord The emphasis is not the place we're going to. If my wife said to me, Peter, you know, um, I like this house. I don't particularly care for you. (laughs) What do you think? Would that be good news? (laughs) Right? Um, And uh, she assures me that she never will say that. But uh, anyway, the point is this, that if people don't, if you look at the description that we just read in Revelation 21 and 22, this is about the Lord. This is his place. As Peter wrote for us, it's a home of righteousness. This is his home that he invites us to be part of. We don't get to pick. The place is not significant. It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's a wonderful blessing, but it's not significant compared to the person who occupies that place and wants us to be there. If that's not our message when we're sharing with people, we are corrupting the message, and we are manipulating. Ask any child, if you describe heaven and even more so if you describe hell at the same time, can you think of any sane child that would not say, I want heaven? Any, Actually, any really sane human of any age. Only the people who are either really warped in some weird headspace or are so committed to their sin life and know it and want it that they don't want nothing to do with God, everybody else would definitely say, I want heaven. But remember the rich young ruler, he said to Christ, he came running up to Christ, he said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And you go through the analysis, and the Lord worked away at his heart to find out what was going on. And what happened is he had an idol in his life. His money was an idol for him. It might not be for somebody else, but it was for him. And Jesus knew that. And Mark's gospel actually says, And the Lord looked at him and loved him. He cared for that man. And that man seemed very genuine. There's nothing in the story to suggest the man was, was uh, a hypocrite of any kind. As a matter of fact, it sounds like he was a pretty devout person, right, in the description. The Lord made no criticism of that, but there was an idol in his life. The money was an idol, and, and Christ said to him, there's one thing you need to do. You need to go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man's reaction was, he went away sad. And the Lord Jesus didn't go chase after him. There was a man who wanted eternal life. But he didn't want to follow Jesus. At least he wasn't ready at that point. Ah, I wonder wonder if he ever did. I would love to see that man in glory. Because the Lord loved him and he hoped, you know, but I don't know. But the point is this. Is that this man um, had a desire for eternal life. There are a lot of people who would love to have heaven. But they're not interested in following Jesus. Unless the gospel is, you die to self and follow Jesus and you need a reconciliation with God, unless you see what the cross was for. It's an issue of sin and salvation and Savior and Lord, right? All those things together. If that's not what it's about, forget talking about heaven, because you're looking for the blessing, not the blesser. And so please, please be careful, especially with children or vulnerable adults, whatever, that we're not talking about this glorious place, and that's the theme. We need to be talking about a glorious person but that needs, we need to be reconciled to that person in this life before we could ever be there with him in the next. We will not be there if we're not reconciled with him here. So it's a, not a destiny thing. It's a relationship thing. But anybody in that relationship gets that destiny. And he's told us in advance, that's what predestination is, that he's already told us the destination. Whereas all other religions of the world leave you hanging. They all make you wonder, missionaries to the Muslims they know Muhammad didn't even know whether he would be accepted right there's uncertainty about all this future stuff in every religion except biblical Christianity which makes it very clear that you can know now whether you're going to be there because it's not about the there it's about the person who occupies there so in 1 Corinthians 15 let's uh, focus in on just a couple of things here as we get toward the close in the next hour and a half um, what happens to us? So if you're a believer and you die, what happens? Um, so, in, uh, first of all, Paul would say, before I read this part, Paul would say a couple of different times, Second Corinthians chapter 5, Philippians chapter 1, he said essentially, when I die, I'm with the Lord. When you're absent from, from the body, you're present with the Lord. That wasn't the Old Testament way of seeing things. That wasn't even during Christ's time on earth that they would say it that way. But In the Christian era, when Christ had established and ascended on high, uh, one of the things when he said um, in John 14, where he says uh, that where I am, there you may be also, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Have you thought about the grammar of that? He didn't say no one goes to the Father but by me. No one comes to the Father but by me. Again, the heart of God is revealed in a statement like that. It's an invitation, it's not a destiny. Right? No one comes to the Father. That's the heart of Christ is to receive people. And the Father to receive people, not to send people. Right? That's a it's a beautiful thing. Verse 20 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the, de- of the dead. For as all in Adam die, so also all in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. What a fantastic thing. And the chapter is going to close off with similar language. But a very legitimate thing that we have to ask is Paul would say, you know, I'm absent from the body. I'm present with the Lord. And in 1 uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, I mentioned the rapture. I'm not going to turn there. But 1 Thessalonians 4, it talks about us getting new bodies, right? We get to be those who are, are dead will be raised first. And then those who are still alive at the time will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air with them. Um, and uh, we're going to get new bodies. Um, and uh, we're going to be with the Lord forever. And that's a, meant to comfort us. We're supposed to do that. But what are these bodies going to be like? Well, that's a legitimate question that got asked as you go through this. You go jump down to verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Anybody ever thought about what your body will be like in the new order? Anybody hoping it's different from your current body, right? My question is, oh, yeah, what, what would it be? Some people have said, well, will we all be 33 and a half years old? Because that's when, how old Jesus was. Yeah, like, so many speculations, it's ridiculously crazy how, how our minds can go into all kinds of other things. But anyway, but I, I ask that question, do you, right? Like, what, wow, what kind of body will I have? And Paul's reaction to that is in the next verse. You fool. I'm thinking, hang on a second. I thought that was a good question. What kind of body will I have? You foolish person, right? And he goes on to say, what you, what you sow does not come to life until it dies, right? And, uh, and, in, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but the bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds uh, a body of its own. And so on it goes on. And it's essentially saying that the body you're going to have is completely different from the body you currently have. Now, we get hints from scripture that we will be able to recognize people. For example, they knew Moses and Elijah and even though they've never seen him, and they didn't have flannel graph from Sunday school, right? Um, but, uh, but they had, uh, they didn't know, but they knew it was Moses and Elijah. We'll know people. Marriage doesn't exist there but we'll probably know spouses and family members because they're real people and they're in the heart of God and God put them on our heart. I don't think that'll be missed. There are, there's things in scripture to suggest we'll know these things, but our body's going to be radically different. As a matter of fact, we should be really careful how we describe the Lord Jesus even after the resurrection, uh, even things like his scars. We should be very careful how much we insist that we'll see the scars forever. I'll leave that with you for your own study. Scripture actually is not clear on that point because that's part of the old order. That's not part of the new order. Or is it? We don't know. But his image, he revealed himself so he could be recognized. But Scripture actually shows us on at least a couple of occasions his image, how he showed up to people. They didn't recognize him. His own disciples did not recognize him physically. He didn't look the same. And yet he could show himself the same. There are at least two that are coming to my mind on that. The two on the road to Emmaus and also when they were fishing in John 21. And they looked, they were only a few yards off the shore and they couldn't recognize Jesus. Even when he called out to them, it wasn't his voice, it wasn't his body, his silhouette. They saw that so many times, three and a half years walking with him. Anyway, I'll leave that with you. But uh, But the point is this, is that we're going to have a whole different order, and we're going to have whole different bodies, and he's saying, just like the grain, so your body is like a grain, if you're a grain of wheat, the wheat stalk that comes out doesn't look anything like the seed that you buried, so likewise, our bodies that we have now, they are not at all the same, he's saying, what we're going to see is something radically different from what we, it's still the same person, that's still the wheat, same dna kind of thing but it's the same person but you look radically different that's exciting because we work a lot on trying to fix up these bodies in this life and uh it's going to be radically better radically different and no sorrow and suffering i'm going to wrap up with this Um, when we get into the next part of the chapter we see that there's a comparison about the bodies this is a natural body and it's sown in dishonor its weakness and all this stuff and it's a gloriously powerful uh, body that's coming, and it's going to be wonderful. It's, um, it's more like the resurrection body of Christ, which is what Paul also wrote about in, in the Philippi- to the Philippians, that we'll have a gl- body like his glorious body. But look at verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's an important point. It's not that they will not, that's true, but it, they cannot This current body cannot tolerate the unveiled glory of God. Moses had one of the closest experiences anybody had ever had of the glory of God, and he asked to see it, but he was still not allowed to see the full glory of God. He would not live through the experience, and God loved him and had plans for him. He didn't want to kill him off, right? But he could not handle it. By the way, everybody who's going to be in hell also needs a new body. There's a resurrection of every human being. There's two resurrections the Lord Jesus talked about. John 5, there's a resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous, and both have eternal destinies, and both need eternal bodies to handle that destiny. They can't handle those things without a new body. The current body has to be changed. By the way, there are only two destinies, right? There's no middle ground. We try to live in middle ground, but remember that the imagery that we have right at the crucifixion tells us that. The Lord Jesus taught it at least three different times, that there were two, only two destinies. But graphically, when he, when he was hanging on the cross, there were two thieves on each side of him. One who went to one destiny and one who went to the other. And the deciding factor was not middle ground, but the one who was in the middle. That's how you saw him. And that's still true today. Verse 51 Sorry, verse 50, uh, second part of it. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. (laughs) And I can't help but think about a church I was part of that we used to have this next line on a sign on the nursery door. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Anyway. (laughs) We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Question, how quickly are we going to go at the rapture? It doesn't tell us. Nowhere does it tell us how fast we're ascending. It does tell us our bodies get changed in the twinkling of an eye. The Lord Jesus, when he ascended, was visibly ascending. It didn't instantly happen, so maybe that'll happen to us too. But I'll tell you this, if my clothes are going to disappear, I hope it's in a twinkling of an eye that I'm going up, because I don't want to be standing there for a little while like that. But in a new body, might look good. Anyway, um, anyway let's wrap up. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Wow, that trumpet sound, I long for it. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in brokenness. We live in perishable. We live in weakness and so on. But by God's grace, we are powerful people because we're God's people. We're God's people. We have a powerful Savior, and the Spirit of God lives in every single Christian. We are not people who should go around ashamed. We are being changed. We're not called sinners by God. We're called saints. We are not meant to live in failure. We're meant to live in victory. But nonetheless, it's still imperfect in this life, and the day is coming when that's all going to get changed. But the victory is always and will always and then also will be because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the final challenge is this. I have two questions for you. That I will—I've uh, shared with VG. He can maybe send them out for printed form uh, at some point. But two questions: When you think and talk about heaven, what do you picture first, and what do you desire most? That's one question. And be honest, right? What is it when you think of heaven, or when you talk to others about heaven? What occupies your mind? What do you desire the most? Why do you want heaven? Secondly, according to what we read in Second Peter 3 and what we have here in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, how does, the, how does truly believing the tr- these truths about the future lead to character change in the present? So how does our belief about these truths about the future affect a character change here in this life? So I wrap up with verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so, Father, as we conclude this large topic, we're just scratching the surface of all that you've said and all that you desire. But we are grateful that you intend to not only give us this place in your presence as redeemed people, who will be able to have no time hindrances, no weaknesses, nothing that is going to uh, get in the way of unveiled worship and glory. In this life, we feel those limitations. Our desire might be there, but as you yourself said, Lord Jesus, to your disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so, Lord, we come in that imperfection, in that longing, in that weakness, in the groaning, in the pain, in the mourning, and crying, and all these things, and we give it all to you. Thankful that you know that, and you have told us this is temporary. Trust me. Do not fear. I know the plans I have for you. So, Lord, I want to pray for each one of us that our fixation would not be in heaven but on our Savior who makes heaven radiant and can make our life radiant here so that others will see that our longing is not for this world. Our longing isn't even for the next world. Our longing is for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.